Hey there, history fans! And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Lisa. And on today's episode, we are continuing our lovely series on the Wars of the Roses. What? Yeah, it's not over yet. But it is the last episode. I was going to say, although this is the last episode. (laughs) But you have to go through this episode for it to be over. (laughs) It's been a a ride. (laughs) It has. And what we're discussing today is King Henry VII and the beginning of the Tudor dynasty. Because that's the outcome. But before we get started, just to let you know, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at History Explains It All underscore podcast, where we do Today in History posts, Archaeology in the News posts, and we put up polls to see what you want to talk about. What do you want to hear? What 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 episode? And you can contact us via our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You have an opinion we want to hear about it. You want to have a topic we want to talk about, you want us to talk about? We'd like to know. Give us a give us a little email. Send us a little email for that. We'd love to hear from you. You can, we'd also appreciate if you could give us a rate and review on uh, Apple Podcasts. It does help people find us. So we, we'd appreciate it and lets us know how you feel about the podcast. Yay. Let's get started on the actual podcast now. <laughs> All right. So starting out, uh, we're going to talk about how Henry the Seventh became king. We're gonna go recap the entire Tudor episode from a couple. Of, no, just kidding. Brief recap, but not a full recap. <laughs> so, slightly going back to our Tudors episode, as we stated, the Tudors had their own claim to the throne, although it was kind of a weak one. But this is due to Henry Tudor, who was born to Margaret Beaufort and Edmund Tudor. Edmund Tudor being the son of Catherine of Valois and Owen Tudor starting the Tudor dynasty and branching off from the Lancastrians and because of his Lancastrian side of the war this made Henry Tudor a claimant to the throne again though it was a weak one so as Edward the fourth's sons the princes in the tower were uh, captured more or less, by their uncle Richard, who usurped them. Many looked to Henry as the challenger to Richard, because Richard was also very much hated and just disliked. And during the reigns of Edward and Richard, Henry would actually spend 14 years in exile. And during this time, he spent most of it as sort of a quote-unquote prisoner of the King of Brittany. Um, but he would actually later escape to the court of the King of France, where he was actually reunited with his uncle Jasper. Now, while he was in exile, his mother was actually able to ingratiate herself into the court of Richard and his wife, Queen Anne. Now, she wasn't in support of Richard. This was actually an attempt to sort of topple Richard from within. So while serving Queen Anne, Margaret Beaufort was able to secretly plot with Edward's widow, Dowager Queen Elizabeth Woodville, and her daughter, Elizabeth of York. Now, if the women were successful in their plotting, and Henry was successful in his plotting to overthrow Richard, 
he and Elizabeth would then be married, thus obviously uniting both sides. Now, while in France and amassing men to battle against Richard, Henry got word about this plan from his mother. And he made a public pledge that if he were to win the war, he would then marry Elizabeth of York, thus ending the Thirty Years' War. Now, when Henry had all of his plans settled and he and his men, along with quite a lot of money from the court of France, they sailed for England. And they were actually able to sail around the post that Richard had placed along the coastlines in the event that Henry decided to attack with the Navy and ended up being able to sail around the blockades into Pembrokeshire and Wales, his actual hometown. From there, he and his men marched into England and met Richard on the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. For more information on that particular battle, see our previous episode on the Battles of the War of the Roses. Now, at this crucial point in the battle, or sorry, at a crucial point within the battle, the Stanley brothers, the elder of which was actually married to Margaret of Beaufort, Henry's mother, and his brother William, they both switched sides. They were originally in allegiance with Richard, but when it looked like Richard was about to lose, they switched sides. And William Stanley ended up flanking Richard's men, cutting them all down, and in the melee, Richard was killed. The crown was retrieved and placed on Henry's head in the battlefield, thus proclaiming him to be the new king. He then rode into London and took the city as the new king. Now, one of the first acts he did was incredibly crucial for Henry and his upcoming reign. Immediately, he changed the date of his crowning to the day before the battle actually took place. So he also, in records, changed the date of the battle. This was to ensure that anyone caught fighting on the side of Richard would be arrested and charged for treason against the crown and Richard, sorry, and Henry would then confiscate all of their lands and money. Now, as we obviously mentioned, Henry's mother, Margaret, was significant in arranging the marriage between Henry and Elizabeth. Now, once he took the throne, she was still there and there until after his death as well to ensure that he would marry Elizabeth. So we're gonna now go into the marriage between Henry and Elizabeth of York and the significance of their marriage. Now, Henry decided that he was gonna actually wait until after his coronation to have the wedding and to actually make sure that his crowning was actually secure. So instead of marrying immediately, the two were married later on in January 18th of 1486. Now, if you've listened to our York episode, you remember that when Richard took the throne, he immediately passed an act that was called Titulus Regius, and that annulled the marriage on supposedly legal grounds of Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV, thus making any of their children illegitimate. Now, when Henry took the crown, he immediately repealed the act, thus making any children from that couple now legitimate again, which would also to make his claim and any children he had with Elizabeth of York to be legitimate. Now, there are differing sides on the relationship between Henry and his wife. Some say that they've known each other since childhood and had been in love prior to being married. Others say that they may have known each other, but it wasn't a marriage of love or at 
at least it didn't start out that way for sure. Regardless of the beginning of the marriage and how the two felt about each other, by the end, by the, by the time of 1503, when Elizabeth of York passed away, it was very clear to everybody that Elizabeth pretty much meant everything to Henry. In fact, it was often stated that when Henry was busy with government and business, he was very diplomatic and businesslike, maybe even a little shrewd, but he was, he was very businesslike. But when he was with his family, he was kind of completely opposite. He's very doting and loving, incredibly happy when he was around his own family, especially his children. Now, not long after the wedding, Elizabeth found herself pregnant and gave birth to their first son and first child, Arthur, on September 19th of 1486. He was actually named so for the legendary King Arthur, which was also to help bring a sort of prestige, if you will, to the new Tudor dynasty that was beginning. The couple would go on to have seven children, but only four would survive to adulthood. This would be Arthur, Henry, Mary, and Margaret. Henry and Elizabeth would be married for 17 years and quite happily married for most of those at least until her death during childbirth at the age of 37. And this happened also one year after the death of his firstborn, Arthur, who died from an unknown illness at around the age of 16 and 14, sorry, 1502. With the deaths of two of the dearest people to Henry, he became incredibly despondent and withdrawn. And in fact, it said that after his wife's death, he hid away from everyone for days on end, just utter grief. It, it wouldn't even see his own children. When he emerged from his, his grief, I suppose, he began planning her funeral. Now, of course, Elizabeth being queen would have a funeral fit for a queen, but Henry went beyond even that. By this time, Henry was fairly disliked by the realm, and particularly the nobles, which we'll get into why later. But Elizabeth, being the daughter of King Edward and Elizabeth Woodville, was incredibly loved by everyone in England. And records show that Henry gave her an incredibly lavish funeral, which I believe totaled around 3,000 pounds for the time. So very expensive. And in fact, I believe it's actually one of the most expensive funerals for any English royalty up to this day, at least, I think. Didn't know that part. It was a very lavish funeral. Well, I mean, I would expect it to be. I just didn't know it was that lavish. Well, I mean, I would give it 3,000 pounds was an incredibly big sum for that time, plus inflation. And, you know, I mean, I... I would say I probably, just from what the records show of how lavish it was, maybe up there with, say, like Queen Victoria's funeral, maybe? Probably. Alrighty. Well, as uh, Melissa said, they did have a few children that survived. <laughs> Elizabeth of York came from a very fertile family. It's an understatement. <laughs> we're going to talk about them and I'm going to I'm not going to be speaking about them in order of birth by the way just so you know but I will start with of course the eldest son Arthur 
He was the firstborn child of King Henry VIII. But Henry VIII, yes, yes, that's what I meant. King Henry VII, Henry VIII was his brother. Ignore my confusion, which isn't really confusion. It's me just always going for eight when it comes to Henry's. You are a Tudor fan. I am really a Tudor nerd from Henry VIII on because it's more about his children than I'm a nerd. Okay, where was, oh, yes. He was the older brother of Henry Tudor who would later become King Henry VIII. Arthur was born on September 19th or 20th. We're not 100% sure which of those dates, but around there, Four, uh, 1486. And he was a premature baby, actually. Elizabeth carried Arthur for eight months instead of the full nine months that we know of. His godfathers were John Devere, who was the 13th Earl of Oxford, and Thomas Stanley, the first Earl of Derby, and Lord Maltravers. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing words. His godmother was actually his maternal great-grandmother. When he was two years old, an alliance was made between Spain and England, and it was that Arthur would marry Catherine of Aragon, one of the daughters of Ferdinand and Isabella. By the time he was six years old, he was living in Ludlow Castle and was acting as president of the Council of Wales and Marches. Of course, his education was highly controlled and it could only be the best, the best. Thomas Lineker was one of his teachers and he was famous for actually teaching Erasmus. Don't ask me how that worked out. I don't know. Don't ask because that beyond that, I was just like, I don't get this, but okay. Sir Henry Vernon was his acting governor and treasurer. In October 1496, a proxy marriage took place between Catherine and Arthur. And in 1501, Catherine traveled to England. And Catherine actually impressed both King Henry VII and Arthur. After her arrival in England, Arthur and Catherine were truly properly married at St. Paul's Cathedral where Catherine was actually walked down the aisle by Henry Tudor, her younger brother-in-law. And to celebrate the marriage, Henry went all out. Henry VII went all out and there was feasting and jousting and all this other celeb celebratory games going on. And after the celebrations, Arthur returned to Ludlow Castle with Catherine. However, However, not long after their return, there was a breakout of what was called the sweating sickness. And both Arthur and Catherine caught it. However, only one of them would recover from it. Arthur was not known to be a healthy kid, unlike his younger brother, Henry. With Arthur's health not so strong, his immune system was not great, he contracted the sweating sickness and this ended up being a death sentence for him and he ended up dying at Ludlow Castle. Catherine of Aragon, however, would recover. And when Arthur died, it struck King Henry VII and his wife Elizabeth of York very hard. They were extremely distraught at the loss of their son. And Arthur was buried at Worcester cathedral where he is actually still located today i'm not going to go into much detail about the next kid because well we know a ton about him in his regular life because he was king henry the eighth 
So Henry Tudor it is. Henry Tudor was born on June 29th, 1491 at Greenwich Palace. His studies included several languages, which such as Latin, French, and Spanish, which he excelled at along with mathematics, music, and theology. He was known to play several musical instruments, including the lute and the harpsichord. And he was someone who was active when he was younger, loved doing all the sports, such as jousting, loved it, sword fighting, loved it. And due to his place as the second born child of the king, he was originally not considered the heir to the throne. I'm sorry, he wasn't the second born child. He was the second born son, third born child that survived infancy. And he was not considered the heir to the throne of England. And the position that it was believed that he would take was, sorry, I, when I did this research, I laughed, was one in the church. They thought he was going to take position as the second son. He was going to go enter the church. That was standard for the time. I know, but just looking at his later life, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that would have worked. <laughs> but let's talk about the fact that he had six wives and was very known for being a womanizer and then breaking from the church, the Roman Catholic church to become the Anglican church and the head of the church. <laughs> Like, so when I read that, make it to the church. <laughs> but <laughs> when I read that, I laughed my butt off because that was funny to me. However, obviously, the position as a church official would never be filled by Henry, as his older brother Arthur did die, and Henry did become the heir to the English throne at the age of ten. That's when Arthur died. He was ten years old when Arthur died. His father, Henry VII, would then die seven years later, and Henry would become King Henry VIII at the age of 17. Now, these were the two sons that survived infancy. Elizabeth of York and Henry VII had also two daughters that would survive infancy. The eldest daughter and the second-born child was Margaret, and she was born in 1489. Her role as a royal daughter was to marry for political reasons, basically, you know, create an alliance with another country, just like Catherine of Aragon did between Spain and England. And at the age of 14, she would be sent to Scotland to marry King James IV, who was also 16 years older than she was. He was 30, she was 14. And she would be married to him for 10 years until his untimely death, and she would bear him six children. However, only one of those children would survive. And his name was, can you guess his name, Melissa? What was his name? James? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I mean, again, not very creative. James IV would die at the Battle of Flodden in 1513, and his son would become James V. And his mother, Margaret, would become his acting regent. She would, because he was so young, James, was, James V was so young when he came to the throne, uh, his mother basically kind of ruled in his name. However, there was a clause in there that during the regency, she must remain unwed in order to keep her, her acting regency. However, Margaret made 
a very grave mistake and did remarry. And she she married a man named Archibald Douglas, the sixth Earl of Angus. Her second marriage was not a happy one. And because she married during her regency, she angered the Scottish nobles, lost her regency, and she ended up having to flee Scotland to England. When Margaret did return to Scotland, she discovered that Archibald Douglas was having an affair. Not uncommon for the times, but she w- he was having an affair. He was having an affair with a woman who he was, he was doing this affair, having this affair in one of her palaces, one of the, one of her castle holdings. And he was using her money to, to have this affair, basically. She was paying for her husband to have an affair, <laughs> basically. And therefore she made the decision to have this marriage annulled. It was a very long drawn out process that I am not going to go into because that would go on forever. This marriage annulment process was a very long time for her. She would then go on to marry a third time. However, once again, same problem. She fell in love with a guy that just didn't care. So her her third marriage was very close to her second one, very similar. And her relations with her son, James V, would be very rocky throughout her life until the very end. And Margaret did die in the year 1541. The other child, the other daughter, was Mary Tudor. Not don't don't confuse her with Mary I of England. Henry, her niece, Henry VIII's daughter, and Catherine of Aragon's daughter. Different, different Mary. They're, they're different Marys. Mary was the youngest of the Tudor children, and she was born around 1496. When she was young, her father, King Henry VII, promised her hand in marriage to Charles of Castile. However, this marriage would never take place as her father did die before the marriage happened, and her brother... King Henry VIII would break the betrothal and have her instead marry the elderly King Louis XII of France. On October 9th, 1514, the wedding between Mary and Louis would take place. However, right before her marriage, Mary would extract a promise from her promise, from a promise from her promise. (laughs) Mary would extract a promise from her brother. And that promise was that after Louis's death, she could marry whomever she pleased. She did extract this promise. She, he did give her his word. Henry VIII did give her his word that this would be okay. Louis, who was 52 years old when the marriage occurred, died only three months later. October to January. He died not long after the New Year's. Do we know from what? Because that's a pretty short marriage. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, he was 52 years old. and. He was in he was in his elderly years at the time. He was 52 years old. Still seems suspicious. Uh, <laughs> given that she I mean, had this particular promise from her brother. I mean, she did, but we I can double check this for you. Oh yeah, well, he wasn't very popular either. So well, he was popular in France, but 
Ah, well, um, there's debate on that. We don't have a 100% certainty. Plus he, at, at his old age, so some say it's because of his exertions in the bedchamber. Others say it's because he was already ill at the time of the marriage. So we don't have 100% certainty on how he or why he died. We just know he died in January, <laughs> which is <laughs> close enough, but no one ever ended up suspecting Mary, it seems. Other, unless they're gonna expect, suspect her of exertions in the bedchamber. I mean, she was young, she was beautiful. Mm. What can I say? He was married to her. She was also his third wife. After Louis XII died, Charles Brandon, the first Duke of Suffolk and Henry's King Henry VIII's friend was sent to retrieve Mary, who was also, and uh, he ended up marrying Mary without Henry's approval. Not a good move <laughs> because that was not in either of their favors. So they angered Henry and it took them a while, but they did actually work their way back into Henry's favor. And Mary did live her life together with Brand Charles Brandon in England. And she did die in 1533 and Charles outlived her along with their four children. At least she was happy this time. Yes. Unlike her poor older sister. Then... I shall now move on to post the children to imposters, royal imposters. How dare they? <laughs> Sorry, I'm having fun with it. <laughs> so because the Tudor dynasty was just beginning and it was the end of basically the Lancastrian and Yorkist dynasty, there were several people that were not happy with a tutor being on the royal throne. And there were many claiming to be, are you ready? Ready? Edward V and Richard Duke of York. Of course, these are the two princes in the tower. They claim to be them, these, some of these people. I spoke about one of the imposters, Lambert Simnel, during the Battle of Stoke in our previous episode. So I'm not gonna repeat much of that. If you'd like to know more, go back to the previous episode. And he claimed, of course, to be a descendant of Edward IV and was, I didn't know this part, but he was crowned King Edward VI of England in Ireland. While he was in Ireland, he was crowned King of England. Yep. Anything for the Irish to go against the English. Yep. And the Scots as well. That's true. And the Yorkist cause was extremely strong in Ireland. And no matter how much Henry VII attempted to fight the rumors or stop them from spreading that Lambert Simnel was a Yorkist descendant, it still spread rapidly. And of course, this ended up everywhere. And this ended at the Battle of Stoke. Again, please refer to the previous episode on in this series. And that's where Simnel's parading as a descendant ended. He ended up actually working uh, in the kitchens 
Yeah, I, as we also mentioned previously, and I think the Tudor episode when we got to Henry's rule, Henry, because not only of the previous 30 years of infighting, there's also the 100 years war prior to that, which was over 100 years. So obviously he wanted a few things for England. One, make it prosperous. Two, make it rich. Three, make it peaceful. Because it yeah. didn't have a whole lot of peace in the last 140, 50 years. So a, a long, long time. So at least at the first, as we'll see later on, Henry tried to be very benevolent and would rather give light punishment, if anything, rather I mean, than... Still I mean, he still technically had him under his employ at the end, even though he wasn't, he paraded around as an imposter of the Yorkist line. So I think he did pretty well. Yeah, I'm trying to hear that most imposters would have their head chopped. That's where I was getting. Henry, at least at first, in the first few years of his reign, didn't go for the execution uh, or charges of treason or anything like that. But, of course, he later would. Well, I'm about to get into that. Because he had a, to deal with a second imposter. Oh, yes. Is there a well, sus among us? Huh? Oh. <laughs> Are we playing among us now? <laughs> so, Henry had to deal with Perkin Warbeck. Just to give you a little background on Perkin. Perkin Warbeck was the son of an official in Flanders, and he moved to Ireland in 1491. While there, he was discovered dressed in the fancy clothes of of his employers. Don't ask me why. I I could not find a reason as to why he was in the clothes of his employers. And many people then assumed that he was of royal descent. In the beginning, he did deny the claims and actually was convinced to parade around and say he was Richard, Duke of York, the younger son of the princes in the tower. Well, the young, the one of the younger of the princes in the tower. Warbeck actually went to the European continent to gain support, which he did. And he was even taught by the Dowager, Dowager Duchess Margaret, the sister of Edward IV on how to play the role of his, of being the imposter. That's how much she didn't like Henry Tudor, aka King Henry VII. (laughs) And he ended up gaining the support from France, the Holy Roman Emperor, King James IV of Scotland, and uh, many nobles in England, by the way, also supported him. In 1497, Warbeck led a third and final rebellion against King Henry VII, and once again, for the third time, he was unsuccessful. He tried twice before, failed twice before, failed again. And the rebellion ended with Warbeck fleeing to uh, Below in Hampshire, where he was later captured and placed in the Tower of London. He did attempt to escape the Tower of London, and only then was he hanged. So Henry did end up resorting to finalizing result of hanging slash death, but that's only because Warbeck tried to escape. 
I mean, if you first you don't succeed, try again. And if you try a third time and you don't succeed, I guess off with your head. <laughs> you know, as they say, third time's a success, but really <laughs> it, was, it wasn't. It, I guess it was a success for Henry, but not, not Bergen Warbeck. <laughs> I just feel, uh, particularly for the Tudor dynasty, a, a, a common phrase I'm sure uh, that could certainly be said is, bring me my executioner. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Majorly during the reign of Henry VIII. Though. Yeah. Well, and Mary. <laughs> That's true. But Mary burned people at the stake. So less of an executioner need. True. All right. Well, that being said, let's get into the reason why apparently people didn't care much for Henry later on. <laughs> but uh, on that same side note, I will say as we will see in the next few minutes, though Henry wasn't liked by a lot of people, particularly in the latter half of his reign, he did succeed where very many of his predecessors did not. But he had to make people hate him essentially for it. But it worked really well for the country for the next several years. So so now we're going to get into Henry's reign and his economic and foreign policies. So unlike many of the previous kings, Henry himself was actually very quite interested in very as various aspects of government and was actually had a, a style of government known as a chamber style of government. However, also unlike his predecessors, Henry being a challenger to the throne and not raised to take the throne came to the throne without much experience in either financial or estate management. Now, during his 24 years, 24 fairly peaceful years on the throne, he took England from being nearly bankrupt. Again, constant fighting for 30 years of the War of the Roses, plus the over 100, 100 years war prior to that would certainly bankrupt the country, plus constant fighting with Spain, uh, with um, France, of course. And he made England incredibly wealthy and financially better than it had been in a very long time. In addition, unlike his predecessors, he would also take an active role and running the country rather than just up to the nobles. And in doing so, he also ended up lessening the power of the nobles as they also now no longer had control over the king. See our previous episodes on the Yorks and the Lancasters and the earlier kings and how they were controlled by people who were close to them, especially Henry VI. Now, in terms of enriching the country, Henry was incredibly successful in taxing the rich in order to gain money for the country. He set up things that were, are known as bonds and recognizances. Recognizances. I hate this word. Recognizances, which were used on the nobles as sort of a, a form of punishment. If they did something against the law or Henry's law, he would find them, sometimes using ancient Britain law, as precedent and essentially 
if you were fined, you were credited to the king and his treasury, and they, if you didn't pay it in enough time, you'd also be charged interest. So it's like a credited loan. And he also used laws against things such as livery and maintenance, which at the time, livery is the act of the upper classes of the nobles of using their emblems and badges on their clothing, on their banners, on their horses. It's, it's how you would distinguish one side from another if you were in war, because you have the livery and the emblems and the badges. And maintenance was apparently the keeping of too many male servants in your employ. And he had laws against these and would actually levy fines on those that he perceived a threat to his rule. So it's just fines on top of fines on top of fines. And the kind of general was, if you were wealthy enough to fight in a war, you were wealthy enough to, to, to pay taxes, which is kind of a fair thought. Another of the offices that he set up was called Council of Learned in Law. And these were made up of actually lower class men, not even lower class nobles, but lower class men. And a couple of these men were Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley. And these men actually held the position of sort of financial advisors during the entirety of Henry's reign. So if you go back to previous predecessors, you'll see that they, many of them had different financial advisors counseling them and working with the treasury throughout each king's reign because things, things shift. The economy shifts. The king's whim shifts. So somebody does something they don't like, they get a new guy. You know, it's, it's just how government sometimes works. But for Henry, in order to kind of keep things stable, he brought in lower class, non-nobility, into the finances to, uh, as financial advisors for the country, which, of course, did not sit very well with nobles. And he kept these men in the same position pretty much for their lives. And I'll get into that, which was also an incredibly uncommon thing. These men were not liked by the nobility. As I mentioned, they would in, be put in charge of finances and also be the ones to enforce the levies and fines on the nobility. Bonds and recognizances were actually used before, so it's not something new in, in Henry's reign. Notably, Edward IV also used this in order to control his nobles as well. But it's estimated that Edward used maybe around 21 of these during his time, while Henry, during his 24 years, had 40 uses of bonds and recognizances. No, a lot. Now, by 1493, Henry was able to gain 3,000 pounds just from bonds and recognizances prior to the finding, uh, to create, prior to creating the Council of Learned and Law. By 1509, with the creation of the Council, Henry was able to take it from a 3,000 pound per year fine accumulation to a 35,000 pound fine accumulation from the nobles. That is a heck of a lot of money. Bye-bye cash. If you can afford it, you can pay the taxes. 
Bye-bye, money. <laughs> Going to the royal treasury. Pretty much. You can see why Henry was not liked by the nobles. He was... It's not quite the same way of King John, but King John was really, he was taxing the nobles as well, but also taking everything from the peasants, which was a, is a common theme throughout much of history. But in this case, it was pretty much, if it's kind of like some of the Nordic countries now where if you're fined, you're fined based on your income. If you earn more, you get taxed more, you get fined more because you can afford to pay more now one of the major issues particularly for the nobles was that the council also had full authority on what their charges were so if there wasn't one currently in place that they could use to tax a noble they would make one up or even if that that fake charge had no base it was still something they could create just to levy taxes on you now post henry's reign there was actually a commission set up by Henry VIII to look into the practices of his father. And it was found, obviously, that there was rampant abuse of financial powers in terms of taxing people for trumped up charges. Now, the men who ran the council, as you mentioned, were so incredibly hated by the time Henry died in 1509 that Empson and Dudley specifically were arrested and jailed by Henry VIII and then executed the following year on also trumped up charges, this time for treason. Now, in addition to taxing and fining the rich, Henry VII would also tax and fine anyone who started wars against him. And at one point, a rebellion broke out in Cornwall. And instead of killing the rebels after his victory, which was a common thing to do to put down the rebellions and to stop them from happening again, he fined all of the rebels and ordered them to pay an interest to the crown, which of course cut down all the money that they could use for support. The same thing also happened to the French after signing the Treaty of Etap. In 1492, this was done after the English invaded Burgundy, captured the city of Boulogne during the Breton crisis, and the treaty also forced France to withdraw all of its support from Yorkist pretenders, because you also have Margaret, the sister of Richard III, in there supporting the Yorks. And in turn, with this particular treaty, the French had to pay the English treasury 142,000 crowns. To give an idea of how much money this was, this one treaty and the amount of money that France had to pay, or at least Burgundy had to pay towards the English crown, increased the treasury withholdings or the treasury holdings of England at the time by half. I'm sorry. But I don't think my brain is computing this. Would you please repeat that last sentence? Part of the Treaty of Etap required that at least, I think it's Burgundy specifically, because it was a fight in, in Burgundy, that they had to pay the English treasury 142,000 crowns, enough money to increase the English treasury by half. If my eyebrows could go any further up, they would continue to go into my hairline. 142,000 pounds, crowns, sorry, I said pounds, but 
but yeah. I mean crowns, was it doubled the treasury of England? Is what you're saying? nearly. My God. And that was just the one treaty. Oh, there's more. Oh, there's a ton more treaties, but mostly they're just for regard to foreign policy, which I'm about to get into. But in terms of finances for the the crown, you're taxing the nobles. You're gaining about thirty five thousand pounds a year now with the council of learned and law, creating trumped up charges on nobility, taxing and finding rebels who are fighting against you, and now you're finding France for half the money in your treasury. England was wealthy which uh, as i kept researching this i'm going oh so this is where elizabeth got her <laughs> her start jesus Christ. i don't think she got it from her dad no kidding although in the, in a different episode. sense elizabeth wasn't very um miserly and controlling with the finances at least and as much as her grandfather because at least elizabeth was still liked by the time she died mostly at least actually quite quite i mean she's yeah you know, she she was what am i talking about of course she was yeah i mean i was gonna say are you it's elizabeth are we on the same Incredibly page well liked. <laughs> what are we talking about golden age mm -hmm. well that's why i was getting with that so this is like a mini golden age of sorts um as i'll also get into with the foreign policy in just a second but i think this is like a precursor to Elizabeth's golden age is what I would liken it to, particularly given the previous 150 years at least. Now, in terms of foreign policy, Henry also excelled in this as well, which is one of the reasons you don't hear. <laughs> so in terms of learning about the other Henrys, not just Henry Tudors, but the other Henrys, Henry four, five, six, and eight. There are also Shakespeare plays about four, five, six, and eight, if I remember correctly. There isn't a play about Henry the Seventh. There isn't much discussion and a lot of history classes about Henry Seven. Why is that? Not much happened really in terms of major wars and conflicts. It was a relatively peaceful, nearly 25 year reign where he did a lot of diplomatic and business strategies. He made England incredibly wealthy, but he, it was kind of at a cost, mostly to his reputation, but it was at a cost, but he was also incredibly skilled diplomatically. So he just increased foreign relations and there was, oh, there's not a lot of drama if you will unlike the next game <laughs> now one of the treaties he signed with france yet again uh in terms of foreign policy was the treaty of redon and 1489 and this was actually part of the put down for the breton crisis which happened in 1489 to 1492 as france was at this time seen by several european countries as a rising power and I don't mean just that they were amassing a military, they were trying to annex Brittany from England and claim Burgundy and increase the size of their country, which of course they would eventually do. 
Now, another treaty he signed with France, as I mentioned, was the Treaty of Etable, which would also help to ensure that French wouldn't be able to support pretenders to the English throne. And as I also previously mentioned, because of all of his trade deals and arrangements, and I'll get into the trade deals in just a second, he was able to enrich the, the country like it hadn't been in a very long time, if ever really before. During this 25-year reign, the people were really well off, at least economically, to a point where you kind of had sort of the, a middle class and like nouveau riche people sometimes too. Very, a lot of merchant trading, which hadn't been seen for some time. He also saw the beginnings of international exploration and sending people off to find new land. Now, of course, he's not well known for this. He didn't do too much of it, but it's also the late 1490s. It's 1492. We have Columbus. Everyone knows that. Of course, that's Spain, but he did send a few explorers off to find some new land, and it, it worked well enough, even if they're not fully remembered, unlike, say, Francis Drake and all the other people in Elizabeth's reign. One really interesting trade deal that I did not know about is he found himself in the late 1490s, trading and a commodity called alum, a or alum, A-L-U-M, which at the time was found only in the area of Tolfa, Italy, which was a land that was also owned by the Pope. So the Pope had control over this one commodity that was very sought after and very expensive because it was only in this one area. So it also made it very scarce. Henry, in order to get around this, began licensing ships to obtain alum from the Ottoman Empire and then bring it back to England and selling it to the Low Countries, which, of course, made it far less expensive and far less scarce, increasing the economy, which also made the Pope quite mad. Of course it did. <laughs> Angry popes all around. That, that's, I, that's the tutors for you in a nutshell. <laughs> yup. Yup. <laughs> and during the Breton crisis, he also put trade embargoes uh, on Burgundy. Also, this was mainly due to the support of Mary, or sorry, of Margaret, sister to Richard III, again, who was in support of the Yorks, or at least the Yorkist pretenders to the throne. Now, in fact, although by 1496, the embargo had to be lifted, by this time, the pretenders were either captured and executed or working in the kitchen or most of the rebellions had kind of been put down by this point. Also, it was kind of costing England money because Burgundy which is near the Netherlands where all this was kind of going on, was costing them a lot of money in terms of importing cloth and wool because there are trade embargoes on it and it was just becoming too expensive to keep this up. Now, a similar issue with Scotland also happened not long after this as the Scots were also on the side of Yorkist pretenders as we've mentioned before. 
Henry was also able to resolve this with the Treaty of Aiton in 1497, which then was followed by the Treaty of Perpetual Peace in 1502, neither of which really lasted that long, but still it was a good try. In 1496, Henry enacted a Magnus Intercursus, which means great agreement. And as I also mentioned, he had a trade embargo with the Burgundians. Now, aside from punishing Margaret, the trade embargo also worked on a company called Merchant Adventures, which actually had a monopoly on the wool, the wool trade in the Netherlands nearby. In 1494, Merchant Adventures moved their capital, or well, moved their headquarters, really, from Antwerp into Calais. And this embargo on Burgundy increased the wealth on English goods abroad. And Antwerp then ended up actually becoming a very incredible shipping port for the English during this time as well. In fact, many imports, including silks and spices from the East were shipped through Antwerp and then off to England, bypassing merchant adventures in their headquarters in Calais. Now there was another treaty called Intercursus Malus or Evil Treaty, which happened in 1506. This one's a little interesting. So Philip of Burgundy was on his way to Spain to collect his wife's dowry when his ship wrecked on the English coast. And again, England is in constant conflict with Burgundy. And Philip was taken prisoner by Henry and forced him to sign this treaty. The treaty would actually stop any taxes in Burgundy that were imposed on English goods and then raise taxes on imported Burgundian goods. The treaty, though, was never recognized by Burgundy, France, Spain, or even the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> and it was actually never put into practice. It was just more like a prisoner of war kind of a agreement, if you will. In addition, and I did not know this, Henry also began to subsidize some of his assets. Just as we do today, if you want some extra cash, you have several different pockets of, or several different projects, if you will, uh, side, side hustles, if you will. One of them that I certainly don't think is very well known is Henry beginning England and actually Europe's first dry dock for the Navy. This is in Portsmouth in 1495, and it's still used today. So it's the oldest dry dock in all of Europe in 1495. So he also subsidized into shipbuilding and increasing his Navy. In addition to financial foreign policy, as we also mentioned, Henry would set up his family as part of his foreign policy, which is standard for the time. As we also, Lauren talked about, while they were still toddlers, Henry set the marriage between the House of Aragon and the House of Tudor with the Treaty of Medina del Campo in 1489. Henry actually was one of the first rulers in all of Europe to recognize the new unification of Spain with uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, who now unified the entire country under one rule. This arrangement would also see his son Arthur marry Catherine of Aragon, as we mentioned, and was actually a very, very good match, not only the children, but for the families as well. There is also the Treaty of Perpetual Peace, as I mentioned before, 
which also arranged for the marriage of Henry's daughter, Margaret, to marry Scotland James IV. This also was a way to try to break up alliance between France and Scotland. Although this didn't happen under Henry VII's run, or rule, it did eventually happen when James VI became James I of England. Now, during the later years of his reign, Henry would also create a secure alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I, who ruled from 1493 to 1519, and was actually able to persuade Pope Innocent VIII and order uh, to issue papal bulls excommunicating any rebellions and pretenders to his throne, which I think is a pretty good, pretty big deal to, to try to persuade the Pope to do. It's not enough that you commit treason against the crown by rebelling against it or pretending that you're one of the princes in the tower. Now you're religiously excommunicated via the Pope. Yikes. Hmm. So hopefully that gives you a good rundown of Henry's government policies and how he made England rich. And on to his death. No, no. Because, yes, he did die. He did? Yep. Aw. You know what's kind of interesting that I just noticed? Mm. Henry died at the same age as Louis Twelfth. They were both 52 years old. Louis Twelfth is the one that, King Louis Twelfth is the one married to Mary Tudor. Right. His daughter. That's not where I, my brain was going. Oh. Um Henry V, I think it was Henry V, when he signed the treaty with, I think it was Charles VI, mm-hmm. and then upon Charles's death, Henry VI would take the throne, and both Henry V and Charles VI both died within a month or so of each other, <laughs> My, if my memory serves correctly. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but it's quite an interesting little factoid that I, that I just really noticed. So at the age of 52 years old, Henry VII passed away at Richmond Palace on April 21st, 1509. He was ill before he died and his death was actually kept a secret from the public for a couple of days. And the Knights of the Garter were informed on April 23rd, 1509. And only the next day on April 24th was the public notified that their king was dead. So they waited two to three days to inform people that Henry VII was dead and that his son, Henry Tudor, was now acting as King Henry VIII. I'm not sure why they waited. I don't really comprehend that. There was no information really that I found. I briefly mentioned that in our Tudor episode. Uh, yeah. so my, my research that I was able to find on that was- I find this? Because I went searching everywhere. Uh, at least two sources on it. Maybe I'm just not typing in the right things into the search bar. Uh, from what I was able to gather, it was mostly a way 
to have a peaceful transition of power because obviously in the previous generations there weren't and it was all usurpation crowned by conquests and things like that so in order for henry the eighth to peacefully take the throne it was kept quiet for two days so that he could be crowned or declared king so that when henry was then publicly made uh it was made public aware that henry the seventh had passed his son henry the eighth was now already declared king so it was a peaceful transition all righty tighty well that ends my this episode that ends my information that was it on henry's death i mean there's not much he died pretty quietly well that's true i'm surprised you didn't have anything about a funeral or there's nothing there's not much about his funeral to be honest I know. I was like, <laughs> where's the cool information? I was going to say, for you, you took this particular section because you like burials. I do like burials, but unfortunately, there's not much on Henry VII's burial uh, other than, you know, he's buried at the Lady Chapel in London. Hmm. And he's, of course, with his wife. That's where his wife is also buried, Elizabeth of York. So they're buried together. Yeah, there wasn't much about it, unfortunately. Probably, I think it was I think because of also the peaceful power of transition that you were talking about, it, this is an educated guess, by the way, it was probably done very quietly and quickly to keep that peace in that sense. You know who also spearheaded all of this? Oh, dear God, who? She's still alive by this point. Margaret. Because when Henry died, his, when Henry VII died, his mother was still alive, although not for yes. too much longer. She was the one who you mean you mean Beaufort. Yeah, Margaret Beaufort. I'm clarifying because we also have Margaret Tudor, the daughter. No, 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 no. Henry the Seventh. You, you mean Margaret Beaufort, Henry the Seventh's mother, spearheaded everything, the barrier. Everything. She spearheaded everything. Well, of course she did. She was a very strong personality woman. Right. And she had a lot of strength. That's how Henry the Henry, the only reason Henry really came to the throne was was because of his mother right he's the one that manipulated things to go in his favor Mm -hmm. right no exactly she was also there for the birth of her grandchildren she was also their godmother she which also worked towards henry the eighth so when henry the seventh died she was guided him she well she did but also she was the one who spearheaded the whole keep it hush hush thing so that we can get my grandson declared king. And she was also right there next to Henry VIII. Mind you, he's 17 years old, 17, 18. Helping him choose who to put in his court and who to have as his advisors. I think we mentioned that she died not long after Henry became king though. As soon as she died about a month or about two months or so after Henry was officially coronated that's it yeah i was like she didn't live much longer past his death no but she lived long enough to see her family secure the throne that is the end of this episode so i don't know about you but that'll do for this episode of history explains (laughs) it all to me how do you feel 
So that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to, should we try? Should we try? I don't know. One, two, three, go. Explain it all. Hope you enjoyed the series. I'm sure we'll have another one popping up at some point. Oh, we will. But until then, until our next episode, which is next week, our weird history. Bye. Bye. Bye.